Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Catherine and Isabella's horrid novels. I mean, if that doesn't just sound intriguing, I don't know what does. <laughs> we are so excited to welcome today's guest, Dr. Hannah Doherty Hudson. Hannah is an associate professor of English at Suffolk University in Boston, where she works on the literature and culture of the long 18th century and the Romantic period. Her research and teaching interests include book and publishing history, periodicals, romanticism, the novel and narrative theory, digital archives, biography, and popular fiction past and present. Hannah's book, Romantic Fiction and Literary Excess in the Minerva Press Era, out now from Cambridge University Press, reevaluates the novel of the Romantic Age in terms of the perceived excess that accompanied the late 18th century print culture boom, which makes her the perfect guest for today's discussion on the horrid novels of Northanger Abbey. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, and we are excited to talk about horrid novels with you. So the scene that we are looking at today takes place early in Northanger Abbey. Catherine is in Bath and has made the acquaintance of Isabella Thorpe. The two are now quite chummy and have met up one morning in the pump room. Isabella is doing kind of like a how are you this morning check, and Catherine is giving her an update on her reading of Udolpho. After this, Catherine enthusiastically praises the book, and Isabella shares a list of other titles for the two of them to read together. So this is Isabella to Catherine. When you have finished Udolpho, we will read The Italian together, and I have made out a list of 10 or 12 more of the same kind for you. Have you indeed? How glad I am. What are they all? I will read you their names directly. Here they are in my pocketbook. Castle of Wolfenbach, Claremont, Mysterious Warnings, Necromancer of the Black Forest, Midnight Bell, Orphan of the Rhine, and Horrid Mysteries. Those will last us some time. Yes, pretty well. But are they all horrid? Are you sure they are all horrid? Catherine needs to know. <laughs> and you know Isabella would recite that whole list of titles in exactly that tone. <laughs> really upping the excitement, um, anticipation. <laughs> the drama of it all. So, Hannah, to start this conversation, we obviously, we need to know, what does Catherine mean by horrid novels? So it seems like a shorthand that Austen's audiences would have understood, but is possibly less obvious to readers today. Yes, absolutely. So at the time that Northanger Abbey was written, which is just a around 1800, a little bit after 1800 when it was first written, the phrase gothic novel was not in usage yet, which is important for us to remember, even though I'll use the phrase gothic novel a lot in this conversation. But the genre, the kind of novel that we now call the gothic novel was very, very much in fashion. And so that is the kind of novel 
that Catherine is referring to. And I think she's using horrid in a way that we don't really use it anymore. She's not necessarily using it to mean kind of off-putting and terrible and gross, although there might be a little bit of that in there. I think there is. But I think she's specifically she's using it to mean frightening or horrifying. And that's because that the books that were written in this genre specialized in terrifying or horrifying people. So in general, when we think of those kind of novels, the novels in this genre, they tend to be set in the past. They're often set on the continent, especially in Italy or France. They usually have a young heroine who has all kinds of terrible trials and tribulations, including possibly kidnapping, deceit, imprisonment, the threat of forced marriages, etc. And then often these young heroines also witness awful things like murders or hauntings, things of that nature. So there were lots and lots of different kinds of these novels, but Overall, the set elements of them, things like those ruined, crumbling castles or moaning ghosts or swooning heroines, were so (laughs) formulaic that they would have been really recognizable to people at this time, and they inspired a lot of jokes and a lot of parodies. So a lot of people made fun of the novels in this genre, and especially by the time Northanger Abbey actually came out, which was more than a decade after Austen first wrote it, These sorts of novels were really maybe a little bit past their peak of fashion and were something that people made fun of a lot, but they were also incredibly popular, as Catherine and Isabella's conversation really shows us. Right. So did the bulk of these horrid novels, did the ghosts and spooky things, did they, were they typically, you know, real within the world of the novel or was it usually like a Scooby-Doo kind of a situation? Yes, that is a great question. And that's, you know, there's actually a big divide in the gothic novels of this era um, between what's called the explained supernatural, where something seems supernatural, but then later you find out there's a totally, totally rational, although maybe not plausible, explanation. (laughs) And then there's the supernatural supernatural, where there are indeed ghosts, specters, you know, all kinds of weird visions and things like that. So Anne Radcliffe's novels, including The Mysteries of Udolpho, were very much in the explained supernatural branch of things. So all of her heroines do experience terrible things, and they often think that they have, you know, witnessed murders and they're hearing ghosts in the walls and all of these kinds of things. But ultimately, that's never really the case. There is always some kind of reason. A lot of the other novels in this period, though, including the ones on the horrid novels list, do have actual, apparently real supernatural events taking place in them that are not explained away ever. And you just sort of get left with that idea that the supernatural must be real within this world, at least. Exciting to have that variety. You know, you never know what you're in for then if you've got that split genre. That's kind of exciting. Who knows what you'll be picking up? Yeah. <laughs> it's creating its own kind of suspense. Right. Uh, because you there's suspense of what will happen to the heroine, but then also there's suspense for you as a reader because you have expectations about things like kidnappings and murders. But certainly by the time Northanger Abbey came out, people would have known that it could go one of two ways and they would have been waiting to see how it would unfold as it was read. 
And that's usually only going to happen at the denouement of the novel. At the very end, then you'll find out if this is going to be explained or not, which is exciting. General, tell me, was a ghost all along? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> I mean, give me that retelling, please. <laughs> Well, Hannah, you mentioned Isabella's List, of course, um, which starts out with Anne Radcliffe with Mysteries of Udolfo that they're reading together and then The Italian, which is kind of next on their list. But then they quickly move on to this list, these seven additional books that are predominantly published by the Minerva Press. Can you tell us a bit more about the Minerva Press and its particular association with what's now known as Gothic fiction within this era? And maybe even a little bit about how this is a correlation between what's happening with Minerva Press and Radcliffe. Yes, definitely. So the Minerva Press, kind of the the short version, is that it was a publishing house that was founded in London in 1790 by a publisher, William Lane. And Lane had been publishing in London just under his own name for maybe 10 or 20 years before that. But in 1790, he decided to give the press an actual name, the Minerva Press, which was unusual at that time. And then he kind of moved into his bigger, better known business. And so the Minerva Press was active until 1820, when the name was dropped by Lane's successor, A.K. Newman. And the Minerva Press was by far the largest publisher of novels in London at that time. So just to give you an idea of what that means, it published more than five times more novels than any other publisher at that moment. So in the period, you know, around 1800 or 1810, if you thought about novels, you would definitely be thinking about the Minerva Press as a really big producer of novels. And the Minerva Press had a very strong and, especially as the years went on, largely negative reputation. It's kind of ironic because I assume that William Lane was trying to be kind of intellectual um, and impressive by naming his press after the goddess of wisdom, right. but it didn't really work out that way. And I think that's partly because the press just put out so many novels that people started to make lots of jokes about, you know, churning them out as if they were machine made and things like that, implying that there were so many of them, they couldn't be good. And then also, I think the fact that Minerva is a goddess and that there developed a strong stereotype that the press was publishing only things by women and for women. This wasn't really true, but it's definitely the strong perception. It just became associated over time with all of these sort of infamous stereotypes of silly women readers and terrible circulating library novels and the gothic novel. I think just because of how dramatic and extreme and ridiculous some of its plot points tended to be was sort of the peak of all of those things wrapped together. So the Minerva Press definitely did not only publish gothic fiction, it published things in lots of other genres, you know, sentimental novels and didactic novels, historical novels, but it was strongly associated with the gothic early on and never really shook that association. Okay. And I do think also as time went on, I could talk a little bit more about this. I think even if William Lane didn't intend that necessarily from the beginning, he did kind of seem to lean into right. it yeah. as the years went by. Now I'm just thinking that they were probably publishing some didactic novels that were 
pretty full of criticism against some of these gothic novels. Yes, I think they definitely were. I mean, there's a lot of different kind of, if you're thinking about political perspectives or moral perspectives, there's a lot of internal clash within the Minerva novels. And some of them are parodying others. And some of them are critiquing others. um, And some of the authors are kind of speaking to each other in their prefaces and things like that. So It's definitely important to understand that the Minerva Press is not a monolith. You might think that it is if you just sort of read about it or you hear what people were saying about the Minerva novel in the newspapers or the magazines at that time. But actually, it was pretty varied and diverse, all the different kinds of novels and the different sorts of perspectives or outlooks that they had. I mean, that makes sense because like, one of the things I heavily underlined in your book was the the statistic that Minerva Press produced a quarter of all the novels during that time period, like that is so much. <laughs> so, so much. It kind of stands to reason, right, that they would have covered the gamut in terms of genre and, and what they were publishing. Well, and you and you kind of mentioned that, you know, the reputation that they established early on wasn't maybe intentional, but that he leaned into it. Because I'm remembering also in your book that you, you talk about, the you know, the kind of the advertisement that he does where he's actually using a faux gothic premise to kind of advertise his his books. Do you think that also as the as the press continued that they also not just leaned into it in their advertising, but also were like, okay, we're we're comfortable kind of maybe dropping out on the didactic novels and maybe ramping up production on on these more sensational. This is our flagship genre and we are proud of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So I do think that especially towards the end of the 1790s, I do think that there is some truth in that. I think as we move forward towards, you know, maybe the 1810s, when A.K. Newman was more in charge, I think there Newman was actually trying to back away from the Gothic and move more towards the kind of the novel of manners and things like that. But definitely, while the Gothic novel was sort of at its fashionable peak, and while Lane was still in charge, I think he was definitely doing that. Um, And I think we can see that in his advertising. So first of all, just the Minerva Press name itself, if you look on the title page of a Minerva Press novel, Minerva Press will be printed in this special kind of font called a black letter typeface. And it's, I'm trying to think of a contemporary way to describe it. It looks old fashioned. It looks like the kind of writing you might see in a manuscript. And so it's sort of evoking the Gothic and the sort of historical antiquarian medieval associations of the Gothic. And especially as the years went on, I think that kind of really recognizable sort of logo of the Minerva Press had Gothic associations in itself. But then Lane also, he was a very savvy and creative advertiser. And I think this is partly how he grew his business so big. Things like we now take it for granted in the age of Amazon that if you like one kind of a book, then the algorithm will suggest to you other kinds of books that are similar. Lane was doing things like this already in the 1790s. If you flip to the back of a Minerva Press novel, you will find, um, you know, forthcoming from the Minerva Press lists of other novels that are often pretty similar that you can sort of steer your direction right to if you are a Catherine and an, or an Isabella looking for your next read. And Lane also, in the 1790s, published this little pamphlet. And 
he may have done lots of things like this. Um, I don't know. I would love to discover more of them. But this one does still survive. And it's called A Tale Addressed to the Novel Readers of the Present Times. And when you first start looking at it, it looks like it's just maybe a little spooky short story. It's very stereotypical from the beginning. He talks about a dark, dismal, and apparently impenetrable <laughs> forest. When you look through the forest, you see the turrets of an ancient and gothic structure. So there's all these kind of signals that would tell a reader instantly, you are in this particular genre. But then as you read, it becomes very clear that all of the proper names, mostly the names of places and the names of people in the story, are actually titles of Minerva Press novels. And they're all written in caps so that you can see, you know, you can see where the titles are. They jump out on the page. And then at the end of the story, you will find a list with the full titles of all of those novels and their authors and where you can buy them from the Minerva Press. So he's clearly using this sort of gothic stereotype in order to gather a bunch of his books together and attract his readers yeah. in a kind of, you know, innovative, fun sort of way. That's clever. Very clever. I love it. That's that's more exciting than an algorithm. Let's be honest. Right. You know, I want this <laughs> this exciting tale to also be giving me book recs. That's what I want in life now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I want a thrilling book recommendation pamphlet. Thank right? you very much. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. Yes. It's really funny, too, because obviously he was hoping you read this one little pamphlet and then it tells you about all the many, many very long books that you can read. But I also found a reproduction of this little story in an American magazine from the time. Oh. And that was very funny because the edit, there's a sort of an editor's note above the magazine. And I'm paraphrasing here, but it basically says, how convenient Mr. Lane has provided us with a shorthand. We might have had to read, you know, thousands of pages <laughs> of all these novels, but instead we can just read this one story and we get the whole picture. You know, we've, we've seen it all. So that's, again, kind of making fun of the stereotypical elements of Gothic novels, implying that they're all the same. But then also it's just sort of inverting Lane's advertising logic in a way that I found really funny when I first discovered that. Well, and it's and it's funny because any press is good press when it comes to this sort of thing. So even though he's trying to dunk a little bit on, on William Lane, he's also like, he's giving him free press. Kudos. Yes. And certainly... I'm sure that there were readers of that magazine who then did actually go out, you know, go to their local circulating library and try to find those novel titles that were mentioned there so they actually could read them. Yeah. You see the reviews like a scandalous, immoral tale. You're like, well, I got to go pick that up tomorrow. <laughs> I like that one. Taking that <laughs> yeah. to the library. <laughs> so one of the things that your book focuses on is is the theme or perception of excess in the Minerva Press and in these horrid novels. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about these excesses, how they were perceived by the public, and how they inform the way that Catherine and Isabella are consuming these novels in Austin's work. Yes. So I think the thing that really drew me to the term excess when I was doing this project is the way that it is a very slippery term, I guess. It can mean a lot of different things. And it's also very, very subjective. You know, an excess is too much, but who is going to decide what is too much and what is just enough? 
And where is the boundary between those things going to fall? That's obviously going to be different for everybody. And what I found when I started sort of looking for the word excess is that it was used all the time in this period, and it was very slippery in this period as well. People used it to mean a lot of different things. So just looking back at that, the little excerpt that we read right at the beginning um, with the conversation about the horrid novels, Isabella starts out by saying, I have made out a list of 10 or 12 more of the same kind for you. And so I think even that right there, there's a little hint of that excess. The fact that there are so many of these novels that she can just sort of say 10 or 12 more of the same kind. <laughs> you know, there's so many. They're all so similar. I think it's a little bit of Austin's joke because then when she lists them out, there's only seven. So I think there may be the implication that, you know, it's just a lot, but who's counting? Who knows? So many. So there's a lot of novels. I think there's many different novels being published in this period. We know numerically that is true. But then I think there's also this kind of idea of maybe there's an excess of them. Maybe there's too many to read. Maybe it's overwhelming. This is not a problem, obviously, for Catherine and Isabella, who just want more, more, more. But it's definitely a problem for someone like a reviewer who maybe 20 years ago could have read every novel that was published and written a review on all of them. But now, all of a sudden, can't do that anymore. And it's also a problem for someone who maybe thinks that novels themselves are morally problematic or a waste of time or dangerous. And so for those people, there's definitely an excess. Then I also think excess is relevant just when we start to think about the physical size of these books. So most of the novels in this period, like Jane Austen's novels, which were in three volumes, but anyone who has read a novel like The Mysteries of Udolpho know these novels are in many volumes, and all of those novels are long. So, And there's lots of Minerva Press novels that have four or five or six or even seven volumes. There are several hundred pages in each volume. So that's a lot of story, maybe too much story for many people <laughs> to wade through. And that's also a lot of time that you're spending on this versus something else. And so again, especially if you're a person who's worried about novels and you think people are wasting their time on novels rather than doing something more beneficial to society, that's definitely a sort of sense of excess. And then I think the third sense of excess that really seems important here is the idea of emotional excess. And we see this a lot in Gothic novels. So all of the emotions are just dialed up to 11. There is always sobbing and shrieking and fainting so and much crying and so much swooning. <laughs> yes. I once went through and counted episodes of crying in a gothic novel and or references to tears, and it was an incredible amount. It was like every page. So these novels are not calm. Everyone in them is experiencing these really, really strong, arguably excessive emotions. And a lot of people worried that reading a steady diet of these things all the time was going to cause excessive emotions also in people, especially young women who read them. And so I think we really see Austin again kind of playing this with this idea in that same passage when if you read down just a few more lines, Isabella moves on from talking about reading to talking about romance and says, 
I have no notion of loving people by halves. It is not my nature. My attachments are always excessively strong. And so we're obviously used to be paying attention there to how she's over the top. She's ridiculous. She's not kind of moderate. And I think that's all linked into the kind of excesses that the Gothic novel was supposed to foster. I think what's interesting, too, is that that you've identified here, Hannah, this idea of excess and and its potential dangers, particularly to women, both in the fiction itself, which obviously, as you've mentioned, features predominantly young heroines, but also in the way that it kind of perpetuates a social stereotype about excesses in women. You know, there's there's unfortunately always been this this kind of habit of denigrating what young women are interested in. And it feels like that's still very, very tangible in what you're talking about here with the excess for for young women particularly. Yes, for sure. And I do think I'm always cautious, I guess, about making comparisons between the Minerva Press and women's fiction or romance fiction today, because I do think it's easy to oversimplify oh, sure. and kind of elide a lot of the important differences. But I definitely do think this kind of general situation where things are often devalued, you know, uh, literary genres or works are devalued because they're associated with women or women's fiction is kind of automatically considered not as prestigious unless, you know, it's very carefully set apart from other kinds of women's fiction. I do think we see a lot of that happening in this period. And that's part of what interested me in this idea of excess was how did all these literary hierarchies that we so obviously do have now, how did they get started? How many of them just grew out of the sort of practical fact that suddenly it seemed like maybe there were too many novels and so people wanted to get rid of some of them effectively or say, these ones don't need to be talked about. And so I think the excess of the novels themselves, but then also the idea that women, especially younger women, but also maybe especially working class women, were just somehow, you know, intellectually inferior, less educated, less in control of themselves, less rational. And we can think again about stereotypes of hysteria and things like that attaching to women. I think there's this idea both that women are drawn to these kinds of literature because of those inherent so-called weaknesses, but also that they were particularly dangerous for them to read. Because whereas a man might be able to read a gothic novel and, you know, objectively separate himself (laughs) from it, and obviously I'm saying all this with deep sarcasm, but young women can't make that sort of separation. And you could obviously see how it's a sort of short leap from saying they can't make that separation to saying, well, then they maybe shouldn't be able to read these things at all. Maybe someone else should decide what is more appropriate for them to read in order to keep them kind of integrated in the social structure in a more traditional way, perhaps. Their tiny, impressionable brains can't handle (laughs) the excesses of these novels. It's just, that's how it is. Exactly. It's just really in their own best interest to protect them from these kinds of dramatic novels (laughs) that protect their own silliness. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So kind of talking about these literary excesses, Hannah, could you talk to us a little bit about 
Anne Radcliffe and and her novels and how they were kind of perceived because she wasn't published by Minerva Press, correct? So she was famous during this time. You know, she was well known. So like, how was she kind of situated in the public eye versus some of these other so-called imitators coming out from Minerva Press? Yeah, that is such a great question. And it's a really complicated question. I think I singled out that phrase Radcliffe and her imitators just because it was used so much in the period, but still used so much in, you know, scholarship in the last 20 or 30 years. It's been used all the time. And so I think I was interested in kind of picking apart those similarities and dissimilarities a little bit more. So I think the big differences between Radcliffe and most of these other novels, first of all, would definitely have to do just kind of financially, they're at a very different status. Radcliffe was, her books were going into many, many editions and had really large print runs, especially after with Udolfo and the Italian. And she was receiving large advances of the kind that most novelists of this period could not dream of. And Radcliffe was also in general critically acclaimed. Now, I wouldn't say that is 100% true. Absolutely, there were many people who were not really going to endorse any novels at all. There were people who were not going to endorse any kind of supernatural or explained supernatural fiction at all. But in general, within the sphere of people who were talking about novels, Radcliffe has a fairly high status. And there's definitely people who praise Radcliffe at this time and call her a genius and call her work original. And people really admired the kind of poetic and picturesque qualities of her work, the way she describes nature, things like that. So she did receive a kind of acclaim that most Minerva authors did not. Although, again, it's it's very uneven. There's some Minerva Gothic authors who did receive more relative praise and also had much larger um, print runs or more editions and things like that. But I think that because Radcliffe really went down that explained supernatural route that we talked about earlier, it was easier for people who wanted to defend reason and rationality to support her novels if they were inclined to do so, whereas many of the Minerva novels, not all of them, but many did take the more kind of horrifying approach that was associated with German novels, but also with the novels of people like Matthew Lewis, who wrote The Monk, which was notoriously kind of gruesome, but also featuring lots of risque plot points and things that Radcliffe would never have would never have included. So I think Radcliffe was a little bit more, you know, maybe respectable or palatable to a broader audience because she didn't go into these topics that seemed so unladylike or that seemed so dramatic, so gory or so violent. And Radcliffe actually wrote, this was after most of her best-selling novels, but she wrote about the distinction between terror and horror as she saw it. And she basically said, terror expands the mind and horror contracts the mind. And so terror was associated with a kind of, you know, more pure and artistic, sublime kind of fear, 
Whereas as soon as you had blood or gore or any kind of bodily um, violence in the text, then according to her, that was horror and that kind of shut things down and that was less artistic and less admirable. Now, that divide was really not very clear cut in the time that we're talking about in the 1790s or at the time that Northanger Abbey came out, but it kind of shows how there were these two different schools of thought about how a novel could be scary but respectable or scary and just completely beyond the pale. Well, one of the other kind of interesting areas of tension when it comes to these gothic novels is that there's a certain amount of political radicalism in this kind of popular fiction in the Minerva Press. And in some ways, Austen also addresses this in Northanger Abbey when Catherine says that something very shocking indeed will soon come out of London. And then Eleanor Tilney is immediately like, what political unrest is happening? What riot is happening? So I love that there's that kind of tension within the novels themselves that create this. Can you can you tell us a bit more about how this kind of horrid novel sensationalism played out in this kind of more political avenue? That is a really interesting question. And it's it's such a complex question that I think evolves a lot from the 1790s when the kind of first big wave of the Gothic was popular right in the wake of the French Revolution and the terror And then as we're moving into kind of the Regency era, Austin's age, and there are different kinds of political tensions going on. And there's been a lot of scholarship on this. So here, I'll just state for everyone that I'm kind of distilling a lot of different research and a lot of things that, you know, different Gothic scholars have written about. So I think there's a couple main ways that I see these horrid novels or the Gothic novel being connected potentially to radicalism or revolution or political unrest. So first of all, on a pretty simple level, because these novels often do feature violence, fear, blood, all of these kinds of things, we can understand them potentially as a way of people thinking through that violence, that terror of for instance, actual revolutionary France and the terror with a capital T. But with all of that fear kind of safely displaced, it's fictionalized, it's far away, it's in the past. So it's a little easier to kind of keep it at a distance and enjoy it than when you're actually living through it, when it's obviously not enjoyable in any way. Then I think scholars have also argued that some of these really big themes of Gothic novels, especially things like legitimacy, succession, you know, who will inherit the castle or who will inherit the fortune, abuse of power, the proper use of power, all of these kinds of things are thematically ways of exploring or thinking through the big questions about human rights and about the proper role of the monarchy that were being fought out on a political stage during the 1790s and early 1800s. Then I think another way we can see these two things as connected is in this idea of emotion. And we were talking a little bit ago about these excesses of emotion, the overflowing, really dramatic emotions of the Gothic novels and maybe of Gothic novel readers. And so During the kind of French Revolution and then the later years during the Romantic period in England, a lot of radicals and reformers 
we're really interested in the power of print culture, you know, the power of writing, but then also the broad dissemination of writing that you could get using print. They were interested in the ways that ideas could sort of spread sure. through print culture, sparking enthusiasms and engagements and political activism and things like that. This was exciting for, you know, people like, say, John Delwall, radicals, people who were trying to stir up political action, but it was terrifying for people who were worried that the violence of the revolution was going to cross the channel into England, or for people who were happy with the status quo and benefiting from it and did not want to have that disrupted. So I think some people saw print itself as a way to advance society or move it forward, but other people were fearful of the kind of mob mentality that they felt they had seen in France, that they feared this kind of print circulation of ideas might foment. So Gothic novels are obviously not explicitly articulating a call to political action in most cases, but as we've seen, they are potentially spreading excitement or enthusiasm and strong emotions through groups of people, especially these sorts of supposedly susceptible groups like young people, um, young women, working class people that we talked about before. And so I think just the sheer number of people who loved Gothic novels and were just talking about them and spreading the word about, about them to each other, like Catherine and Isabella are, and then also this susceptibility to really strong, overpowering emotions that some of these readers seem to have did, I think, make some onlookers draw some sort of uncomfortable parallels between this kind of large group and then the revolutionary mobs in France, mobs in which, not coincidentally, both working class people and women often played an important role. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's why it's so interesting too. Again, in Northanger Abbey, particularly, there's that part where later in the novel, Tilney is kind of recognizing what Catherine has been fantasizing about his mother's death, and he's and he actually is like, okay, but that's not in England. He's very clear that he's trying to make a clear distinction that those things don't happen in England. He talks about spies. He talks about other things that that's not us. That's not England. And he's very clear about that political division while also kind of talking about the Gothic fantasies that she's potentially been embedding in her in her brain. Well, I just I love this this imagery that you have in your, your book, Hannah, that novels spread ideas and ideas spread feelings. If those ideas were dangerous, then towering stacks of undesirable novels easily might become crowds of ungovernable citizens. Really sends that home, right? Yes. Like, <laughs> We we can't let they're gonna start having ideas. Like what could happen? <laughs> All these books, so many ideas. Yes, that's what was so funny to me when I started looking for these sort of excesses. Because I mean, obviously, many of these people had very serious concerns. They were serious to them. But when we look back on them, both their sort of fears about ungovernable women and what they might do, but then also their fears about those towering stacks of novels, which you know, I talk about at, around that part that you just quoted, it's pretty funny how many kind of apocalyptic images of just 
too many novels and what's going to happen to them? What if they crush us all? What if they catch on fire? What if they fire and they burn the whole world down? What if they descend upon us like a plague of locusts? You know, I really didn't expect when I started looking into this, I was familiar with the idea of overwhelm of text because of our present day internet age, you know, where we're all sort of overwhelmed with words. But I really didn't expect that kind of physical specter of too many looming piles of novels and how the ways that they could physically kill us or destroy society um, and how so many authors would align that with all of these other potential ways that they worried society might come to an end. I mean, that was a really creative criticism, the idea that there would be just streets, warehouses full of all of these novels, and they will catch on fire and and the world will burn. All of London basically. will go up in flames. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the fear of actually the physicality of books is such an interesting critique. Yes, that the excess of the physicality of them is a bodily threat. Just absolutely fascinating. I give an A plus to the critics of this time for creativity yes. because that is <laughs> it's quite original. The critics of this time are fantastic. I have to say, I mean, they so many of them are so mean, but also so funny, you know? <laughs> I've spent so much time reading really mean reviews of Minerva <laughs> Press books, but often they just make me laugh aloud. They are they're weird often, but you know, so clever and <laughs> creative in ways that we just don't necessarily think about now. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so I do have one more question for you, Hannah, and that is, how many of Isabella's book recommendations have you read? I am very familiar with the horror novel reading list. And in fact, these were the first Minerva Press novels that I ever Ooh. read when I was first working on my dissertation. And I think that's because Austin mentioned them. And now in the age of sort of digital databases and the Hathi Trust and things like that, you can get quite a few of these novels and read them pretty easily. But when I first started working on this project, it was not so easy to get a hold of them. And you'd have to go to different libraries and find them. But because Austin is so famous, these were the ones that okay. were available in contemporary editions. So I went and read them first. And that was kind of my gateway into the Minerva Press. So yes, anyone who would like to read these for themselves after having read Northanger Abbey or heard this podcast, I believe Valancourt Press has all of them, I think in you know inexpensive paperback editions that you can read and then there are also some older ones from arno press i believe um so they they are available for people who want to kind of really dig deep into the isabella thorpe experience who wouldn't i mean what a journey it's kind of fun to think about the fact that by virtue of mentioning all of these novels in northanger abbey I don't think it's giving Austin too much credit to say that she's probably the reason why these books are still discussed and known, at least in certain circles. I think that's definitely true. And actually, I'm trying to remember who it was. Maybe it was Michael Sadlier. There was a scholar at the kind of beginning of the 20th century. Um, and if I'm misstating that, I apologize to everybody. But there is an article about someone who was trying to kind of track down a lot of these novels before anybody else was interested in doing that. 
for a while, it was thought that some of these titles were made up by Austin because they just sound so stereotypical, like the castle of Wolkenbach. But he actually hunted them down and realized, no, these were real novels. And it took a while to hunt some of them down. They weren't, you know, they weren't easily accessible. Right. So I do think we can totally thank Austin for that. I love that. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to come and talk to us about Minerva Press, the horrid novels. Where can our listeners find out more about you and all of your fabulous work? Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. So I think at the moment, I am on three social media platforms, which is maybe three too many, but <laughs> I am I'm on um, I'm on Mastodon, Twitter, which I continue to call Twitter, and Blue Sky. If you search Hannah Doherty Hudson, you can find me on any of those. And then I am also in the very early stages of launching a new Substack. I, I say this with the caveat that there's only one entry in it right now, but because it's about, it's called Ask a Georgian Magazine, and it's a place for me to kind of put all my fun magazine discoveries. I'm working on a book now that's about 18th century magazines. And so I'm going to be answering burning questions about the Georgian period um, and the Regency by consulting magazines from that period to see what they have to say about them. So I suspect there might be some listeners of this podcast who might be interested (laughs) in that. So you go ahead and search for me in Substack and sign up. Then when I start, you know, sending out the regular posts, you will be ready for that. Excellent. Love it. I'm going to write in as Sir Walter asking for tips on, you know, keeping myself looking young and beautiful. So <laughs> please do. Please do. I've been listening um, questions from my friends and my students and just the questions that I have myself that I want to look I up. Love it. So Yes, would welcome all beauty-related queries, reading-related queries, <laughs> Bridgerton-related mm-hmm. queries. Yes, <laughs> fabulous. So fun. Well, thank you again for taking the time out of your schedule to do this with us. Yes, thank you. Thank you. It's been great being here. Thank you again to Dr. Hannah Doherty Hudson for joining us for this discussion. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. Stay tuned for next episode where we will be talking about stewards. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you.